Welcome to the Semester at Sea Wavelength Podcast. This is the ninth episode, and I, Patrick Fennell, will be your host. Every week on the podcast, we hear interviews, stories, and other audio from students, alumni, and staff. The following speech entitled The Recipe by Brittany Brown was recorded in August 2014 while the ship was docked in Helensky, Russia. Some of you might remember back in episode 6, we heard from Professor Daphne Spain. This segment is taken from that same event. Once again, The Recipe by Brittany Brown. You're only one person. What difference can you make? How many of you have ever been told this before? I have worked with a recipe that has helped me overcome these roadblocks when something was telling me that I am only one person, that I can't make a difference. These roadblocks stop motion. They stop people before they can move from an idea. My story begins with a star that had fallen. The star's name was Kiana. She was a close friend who passed away when I was in high school. She instilled this image of passion in me and was a living example of his definition. I could remember her saying, I dance. I am a dancer. See, this world is my dance floor, and I dance all around it. I inspire those who hear my soul through my silence. I speak to those who listen hard enough to my movements. I read passion with every intentional sway or pop that I make. I dance, and that is what I do. She had a complete disregard for its societal worth or career practicality. She emphasized that that is what she did. She danced, and she had no interest in doing anything else. I remember asking myself, why do stars fall? Then remembering when I was a kid, always being told that if I were to ever see one, that I was supposed to make a wish, that wishing on a star could make dreams come true. Given an unfortunate situation, I was determined to make something out of that. But what? Although I didn't have the same passion as she did, I knew that somebody could benefit from the passion that she had for dance, who I could help. Kiana was my star, and I had no dream to wish on her for, but I knew that I could help someone. I knew that I could make a difference through using the passion that she had. Although I didn't share the same passion, I knew that passion was important to capture. That passion was something that had to be spread because a lot of people didn't know what it was. Through my scholarship, I encountered the next ingredient to the recipe. It was this girl, she was telling me her journey with dance. She was explaining to me all the troubles that she had experienced from injuries to the lack of support. And it was exhausting just listening to her. I was like, why do you dance? Why do you dance if it's so hard for you? And she told me that I must try. I am possessed with a passion that won't let me stop. It is a flame that ignites me and never simmers. I rehearse my choreography over and over until I find a flaw that I must practice to perfect. I fall seven times, proudly knowing that by the eighth time that I stand, I try and I try until I can land on my feet the way that I intended before I left. I know that I can make a difference through dance because I won't stop until I do. She couldn't stop. Falling was not what she was afraid of. It was never trying to get back up that was. She had persistence. This was something that I knew all too well, going through trying to create this scholarship, that I had to get knocked down a couple times to be able to stand up and say, I did it. 
I knew what my scholarship meant, and I knew that passion was worth rewarding. After three years of having this scholarship, it wasn't until this year that I was able to come across the final ingredient to this recipe. In addition to a self-choreographed piece, the applicants are required to respond to an essay of why they dance. This particular applicant's response went, my splits are not perfect. I can't, I can't leap that high off of the ground, but dance has taught me that none of that matters. Dance is an expression that does not depend on how high you can get your leg in a performance. See, she respected the art, but appreciated the form as well. She knew that dance was more than just the technicalities. She knew that dance meant something, that there was a feeling. She learned the purpose of dance through her experience and in turn put it into her life. After hearing her reflect on how she understood this purpose of dance, it made me reflect on my own scholarship. It made me think about what is the deeper meaning of why I'm doing this. Although it intended to assist the recipients with their college funds, it meant something more. It meant providing this selection of students who have a passion that has a decreasing value in our society and giving them a space for somebody to believe in them. I realized that when you have a passion and you have a purpose involved in something, that risk almost doesn't exist, that it becomes determination. See, I was determined not to let my friend die in the passion that she possessed to go with her. I was determined not to let this girl who tried to get her dance perfect every single day not to go unrecognized. I was determined not to let this girl who had an understanding for dance not share that understanding with others. It was from my understanding that I was able to create a space for these people to have somebody to believe in them. My story is composed of other people's stories because it's not only about me. It is about all the people who have helped me all the people who I've learned from. Through dance, these three young women taught me something important. Their stories aren't just about leaps and spins. Their stories are about traits and characteristics through which I've been able to learn the recipe of motion. What difference can you make? One day, a woman was walking along the shore, and in the distance, she sees a figure. As she gets closer, she sees this little boy repeatedly doing a motion. She approaches him and says, little boy, what are you doing? The little boy turns and says, all these starfish got washed on the shore. Tonight's a low tide. If I don't save them, they'll all die. The woman turned and looked. There's thousands of starfish on the shore. She turns to the little boy and says, little boy, you should just give up. You're only one person. What difference can you make? You can't save them all. And the little boy bent over, picked up another starfish, threw it back in the water and said, I saved that one. Who is this little boy? If any of you find yourself saying, I love what I do, I can't not do what I do. I'll die if I don't do this. You have a passion that you have to hold on to. If any of you find yourself saying, I have to keep trying. I can do this. You have a persistence that you can't lose sight of. If any of you find yourself saying, I know why this is important. I know how this can help people. You know its importance and you have to share its value with others. If any of you find yourself saying, I won't stop until I get it. 
I'm not okay being here. There's something more than being here. You have a drive to do something. I challenge any of you who are saying these things to use this recipe to make motion, to overcome these roadblocks. Who is this little boy? This little boy is me. This little boy is you. This little boy is in all of us. Whenever anyone says to you, you're only one person, what difference can you make? Remember that the power of one is the power to do something, even if it's only throwing one starfish back in the sea. Since 1963, Semester at Sea has given over 73,000 individuals from 1,700 academic institutions an unparalleled experience of visiting more than 60 countries across six of the seven continents. Semester at Sea serves undergraduate, gap year, and graduate students. Furthermore, the Lifelong Learner Program allows non-students to experience, explore, and learn alongside students. If you or someone you know wishes to apply or donate to this world-shifting experience, please visit semesteratsea.org for more information. The following segment is with Dr. Peter McGraw, who sailed on both the fall 1996 and the fall 2000 voyages. Dr. McGraw is director of the Humor Research Lab, a.k.a. HURL, host to the I'm Not Joking podcast, co-author of The Humor Code, a global search for what makes things funny, and is author of the book Shtick to Business, what the masters of comedy can teach you about breaking rules, being fearless, and building a serious career. He's a noted public speaker and teaches MBA courses for the University of Colorado Boulder, University of California San Diego, and London Business School. Here is the Wavelength Alumni Series interview with Peter McGraw. Hello, friends and alumni of Semester at Sea. My name is Peter McGraw. I sailed on the fall 1996 voyage and the fall 2000 voyage. I was on the resident staff, so I was in charge of one of the seas there. I'm currently a professor of marketing and psychology at the University of Colorado. And as we'll talk in a little bit, I direct the Humor Research Lab, a.k.a. HURL. So, I mean, it's so easy to come up with with fond, fond memories of my time on Semester at Sea. It's easy to point to things like seeing the sunrise over the pyramids at Giza, uh, visiting the Taj Mahal, hiking the Great Wall, and so on. I would say that my favorite memory really is the overall experience of becoming a global citizen. Becoming a, becoming a world traveler and understanding the complexities of life in many cultures. Uh, so I teach uh, MBA class for London Business School in Dubai. And many of my students are, um, are from Saudi Arabia. They're from UAE. They're from Lebanon. They're from India. They're from Russia. They're from Africa. And uh, it's really quite a diverse group. And what's really fascinating about that group of students is how easily we get along. That is where we share that global citizen perspective. And that's something that Semester at Sea really helped me kickstart. Uh, to that point, I, I grew up a fairly provincial kid in 
southern New Jersey. I had moved to Santa Barbara, California. And uh, prior to 1996, my, my only overseas, excuse me, my only international travel was a trip to Tijuana. And so you can imagine uh, how life-changing uh, the experience was for me, as I'm sure it was uh, for you. So I want to take just a little bit of your time and, uh, and talk about a, a new project uh, that was recently released um, as a book called Stick to Business what the masters of comedy can teach you about breaking rules, being fearless, and building a serious career. And so I'm going to share with you a few lessons from that book. Um, but let me just take a few moments to, to tell you how I got there. Uh, so during fall 2000, I was a PhD student uh, at Ohio State University. I was studying what is now commonly referred to as behavioral economics. Uh, so I, um, I was studying essentially how people's emotions affect their decisions and how their decisions affect their emotions. Over the course of my career, I've, I've studied things like what, um, whether people can feel happy and sad at the same time, how do people's emotions affect their, uh, the way they spend money, for example, how they save money, um, even looking at things like why does the TSA suck so badly. Uh, about 12 years ago now, I stumbled on this question of what makes things funny? And, uh, and I've since then been studying, answering that question and, and looking at implications for living a more humorous life. Uh, one of the things that has, has been a really great pleasure as a result of that has been the need for me to leave the laboratory. So I have, I have a lab uh, called the Humor Research Lab, aka Hurl. And while you need experimentation to to answer this very puzzling question of what makes things funny, you also need to go out into the world, you know, sort of Indiana Jones style, and check that out. And so I ended up in um, in the early 2000s connecting with a, um, excuse me, not in early 2000, in around 2010, um, connecting with a, uh, a journalist. And we went on what we called our humor code adventure, which ended up becoming my first book. And so we clowned with Patch Adams in the, uh, in the Amazon uh, jungle. We visited uh, the set of a comedy game show in Japan to figure out what goes on behind the scenes with these crazy comedy game shows that the Japanese love so much. We even uh, crossed over the border from Israel to Palestine to look at humor where you would least expect it. And so it was a uh, life-changing, profession-changing, global crisscrossing uh, adventure uh, that turned into my first book. And the, the short answer of, of what makes things funny is uh, what I call benign violations, things that are wrong yet okay, things that are threatening yet safe, things that don't make sense yet make sense. And so when you look at... Um, when you look at humor, this benign violation perspective really solves a lot of puzzles. For example, it helps explain the two ways that a humor attempt, a joke, can fail. That is, it can be too benign, that is, there's nothing wrong, it's boring, or it could be too much of a violation, there's nothing okay about it. And, and in that case, you get people who are really upset and outraged uh, 
Python. It explains, for example, why the very same joke can make some people laugh, some people yawn, and other people be outraged. And that is because what's wrong and what's okay, what's a benign violation, depends almost wholly on the audience's perspective. That is their values, their culture, the context, whether they're in a comedy club or a church, and of course, the number of drinks that they've had. So, so this work has been tremendous, tremendously satisfying. I've, I've been um, publishing it in very boring, dry, esoteric academic journals, um, but it's, it's made its way out into, into the real world. I've done a TEDx talk. Obviously, I, I um, have written extensively about it, and it crops up every so often. For example, um, I've been getting a lot of calls from journalists these days asking about humor in the time of corona that is is it okay to make jokes about uh, these very difficult times that we're in my standard answer to this is by all means as long as there's a certain amount of sensitivity built around those jokes that is who is the victim who is the target of the joke is this a joke that's designed to unite us or or a joke to to divide us now, of course, rather than making your own jokes, one of the better places to, uh, to do is to lean on the professionals, lean on the masters of comedy. And as you know, there is no shortage of stand-up specials on Netflix, for example, as well as a huge library of uh, a very funny comedy movies and TV shows. And we need a little bit of levity uh, while we're sheltered in place, while we're, we're struggling with these, with these moments. My most recent book, though, goes beyond this idea of being funny, and it's built on a premise that, you know, for most of us, our professional problems are not going to be solved by improving our sense of humor, but rather that we can learn from the masters of comedy. That is, we can, we can learn to think differently. We can think funny. And uh, because these folks have such a challenging job, an incredibly difficult job, which is to create laughs on command, that we can learn from their practices and perspectives in order to be more creative, to be more successful, and to, to try to make our way in these challenging economic times. So let me give you three brief examples of uh, of lessons from the book. So so the first one is is from the first chapter in the book called Reverse It. So the reversal is comedy 101. It's one of the first things that you, if you don't already know it as a comedian, you learn it as a comedian. And reversals can serve as the uh, punchline to a joke or as a premise uh, to a sketch or comedy movie. So, for example, Henny Youngman, you know, the king of the one-liners, uh, has a joke that says that when I read about the dangers of drinking, I, right, so the reversal, the punchline is, I stopped reading. So reversal show up, as I said, in, in the premises for sketch and movies. For example, the movie Trading Places with uh, Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy uh, is a, a reversal. So Dan Aykroyd, who plays this wealthy banker, and uh, Eddie Murphy plays this street hustler, actually trade places. You have a reversal, and it serves as a comedic premise for the entire film. Well, thinking in reverse is super useful for business. Uh, for example, for many, many years, the, 
the way to sell diet and fitness products was to promise how easy it is to get in shape, how easy it is to lose weight. And as a result, you get these ridiculous products like toning shoes or the shake weight, you know, stuff like that. Things that don't work. Well, uh, Tony Horton, the creator of P90X, uh, engaged in a reversal in order to, uh, to be successful. That is, he never claimed that P90X would be easy, actually claimed that it would be insanely difficult. You know, this is a, a these were, were workout videos in which you were working out six days a week, up to 90 minutes, had things, had, had exercises like the ab ripper, right? These, this was incredibly challenging, but yet the reversal worked. So P90X was at the time, the most counterfeited DVD in the world. Basically, people were ripping how to get ripped. P90X became worth about $200 million for the parent company, Beachbody. Well, I think that thinking in reverse is a very useful thing for business, right? It's a way to escape the competition, for example. When everybody's doing X, if you head in the opposite direction, that can be valuable. Now, for a time of corona, for example, how is thinking in reverse going to be useful? Well, I think that the most obvious place that it can be useful is that there are a lot of bad things happening right now. And so what I invite you to do, this is not for comedic purposes, but for actual problem solving purposes, is that whenever you come across a piece of bad news or, or a piece of difficulty, the tendency is to want to say, this is bad. I invite you to find a way to say, how it can be good. So, for example, you know, the idea behind having to be um, sheltered in place, parts of the country are starting to, to loosen up now, but other places are still being sheltered in place. What are the opportunities that can come from this? Right? This, this might be the last time that something like this happens, let's hope. And so, what are the potential benefits of doing this? Is it a time to um, spend more time with family, to be more, more focused on um, home projects, are there threats, particular threats to your career? It's very easy to judge those as bad. What are the good that come of this? Perhaps this is the kick in the butt that you need to make that career change that you've been contemplating but too scared to do. So another lesson is, uh, it actually comes from uh, one of my favorite chapters in the book called Write It or Regret It. And so most business books don't really top tackle the topic of writing. Uh, Stick to Business does so. Um, actually, one of my early readers sent me a text and she said that she's read at least 100, maybe 200 business books and, and never has one talked about writing. And the reason I chose to write about writing is that for, for most comics, improvisers excluded, the, the writing process is incredibly important. That is, it serves as the foundation, obviously, for things like sketch and television and film, but it even serves as the foundation for stand-up comedy. Almost every joke that a stand-up tells on stage comes from a writing process of some sort. And the first step in that writing process is to record your ideas. That is, that, not, that the notebook, not the microphone, is the important tool in a comics toolbox. And so... One of the things that I invite you to consider doing if you don't have a writing process is to start one. And that might just be as simple as, oh, here it is, this, starting with a little notepad. And uh, that, that might be something as simple as doing a little gratitude journaling every day. But 
I think it's really important to be recording one's ideas, observations, thoughts, and feelings, um, and ideally doing it on a daily basis. So when I started writing the book, I actually started my own journaling process, and I, I wish now that I had started it when I was 15 years old because of how helpful it is for me to, to um, record what's happening and to be able to revisit those things. And during this extraordinary time, uh, it will be interesting to look back on the, on the things that you are thinking and feeling and, and being able to see them in your own handwriting. The other value of writing is to clarify ideas, whether it be thinking about a new project, thinking about a major change in life. Writing requires a level of clarity, a, a level of precision that's necessary that, uh, that you don't get the same level of with your own thoughts. And so um, anything that you're contemplating doing that seems to be rather big uh, is worth writing down. Now, one of the things that I really like is the, uh, the one pager or the one sheet. So almost actually any big project that I work on, whether it be working on this book, uh, or launching a new podcast, which I've done recently, um, I write a one pager. Um, and if you go to petermcgraw.org, you can download a free workbook um, where you can see some of those one pagers. You can see some examples of those. Um, as well as some other exercises associated with the book. But the, the act of writing requires a level of clarification, a level of precision that's really necessary, especially for any big, big decision that you're going through. And then obviously that one pager moves from being a place where you clarify your ideas to a place that you can communicate your ideas. That is, you can give it to someone else and say, what do you think of my new business? What do you think of this change? What do you think of this project? And so uh, the one pager can turn from a clarifying tool into a communication tool. And then the last, uh, the last lesson, I actually am going to pull out of the epilogue. So in the book, I have what I call the case against comedians. And so I highlight some of the things that comedians do that you don't want to do that I don't want to do. And one of them is that unfortunately, they don't often take good enough care of their health. So at the end of the semester, I always ask my MBA students, is your health really number one? And uh, I think one of the things that we tend to find is that especially among ambitious people, there's a tendency to kind of cut corners, whether it be exercising, eating, sleeping, and so on, in order to get stuff done. There's just not enough hours in the day. Now, what I want to do is to, to suggest that that's not the place to be cutting corners. That um, as demonstrated by the pandemic, you know, the real heroes is, are our immune systems. You know, that's the thing that's going to keep us on the right side of this. And so um, my last request of you to contemplate, besides learning to think in reverse and learning to write in order to record, clarify, and communicate your ideas, is how can you make your health more of a priority? Especially when it's a, it may be difficult to exercise and it may be difficult to um, regulate your eating and so on. And so I always talk about the, the tripod, these sort of three paths to, to being healthy. Um, the first one is getting good quality sleep and to be assessing, are you getting enough sleep? Right. Or what's getting in the way of your sleep? Obviously, anxieties are, are a common thing. 
you know, do you have good sleep hygiene? Is the temperature in your room correct? Is it, is it dark enough? Is it comfortable enough? Do you have a regular schedule that you're going to bed at the same time and getting up at the same time every day? But really looking at taking a look at your sleep and if necessary, taking a little nap in the middle of the afternoon, taking that little 25 minute nap to get some of the cognitive and emotional benefits without what's called sleep inertia, without feeling groggy. Um, the next one is, is exercise and the value of exercise, for not only to have a strong uh, body and immune system, but, but also to help foster positive emotions, to help you be more creative, to help you be more resilient in this way. And I mean, obviously the most, uh, uh, the most important thing is to be walking. Right. So one of the things that I think we're doing all doing too much of these days is sitting. There's there's a lot of sitting around that's happening. And so I encourage you to to have a daily walk. I'm currently on a sabbatical for my sabbatical. I'm out in the Joshua Tree Desert. I'm doing a nightly walk, um, oftentimes without electronics, just where I have a chance to, to get some fresh air to get a chance to think. Obviously, going beyond walking, anything that that's going to help you. Uh, build muscle, build some cardiovascular endurance. Those things matter a lot. And this might just be a matter of doing push-ups and air squats, you know, in a, in a free space in your house, but wherever possible, trying to get outside. That seems to be um, super, super important these days. And the research is, is starting to show the benefits of that and also how little risk there is with regard to transmission, thankfully, when it comes to outside. And then the last one is eating right. So in order to fuel a healthy mind and a healthy body, how is it that you are um, trying to eat more fruits and vegetables, trying to eat, uh, trying to stay away from sugar and processed food, you know, eating a variety of, uh, uh, of foods, things that are wholesome and healthy in reasonable amounts and, uh, and not eating too late at night, which as we know can be, uh, can be a problem as we're bored and stressed as the day tends to wind down. And so um, I ask you this question, is your health really number one? And if the answer to that question is no, how can you move it to be your number one priority and to able to serve as a foundation for not only for you to be able to obviously battle sickness, but also to give you the um, kind of energy and positivity that's necessary to be um, not only good at your work, but also a good friend, a good family member, a good parent, a good brother, a good sister, a good good son or daughter in these really troubling, tumultuous times. Well, I'm super pleased to be asked to do this by Semester at Sea. I invite you to connect with me at PeterMcGraw.org. I've got two different podcasts there, one called I'm Not Joking that looks at the lives of funny people, Another one called Solo, The Single Person's Guide to a Remarkable Life. You can find my books on Amazon. You can find me on Instagram and, and Twitter at, at Peter McGraw. I'm also on LinkedIn. Don't do much on Facebook, though. In any case, uh, I wish you the best. Um, just preparing for this has brought back so many fond memories of Semester at Sea. I'm incredibly grateful for those life-changing experiences, and I wish you the best. Take care, be well, and cheers. Well, that is just about it for this week's episode. Special thank you to the Semester at Sea Home Office in Fort Collins, Colorado, and 
to everyone we heard from this week. The show will be back in two weeks. To any alumni, please reach out to the show. The content on this show is only possible with your help and your experiences. Once again, to apply, donate, or learn more, please visit semesterc.org. Today's episode will be played out by the most special song in the Semester at Sea community, the Semester at Sea alma mater. The song was written as a tribute to Dr. Max Brandt, Chief Academic Officer, Emeritus of the program for nearly 30 years, starting in 1979. The date of this show's publication, May 10th, 2023, actually marks the one-year anniversary of Max's passing. Dr. M.A. Griffiths, former Dean and Academic Vice President, lauded Dr. Brandt as, quote, a true internationalist. Prospective students can apply to the Dr. Max Brandt Scholarship Fund. Thank you. So thank you to Dr. Brandt, in part on the whole community, for all the students you have impacted both directly and indirectly. The SAS alma mater song composition has since become one of the program's traditions, gathering as a community to sing the alma mater on one of the final days of the voyage. The lyrics were written by pianist John Rosenberg, who sailed spring 2000. So without further ado, in honor of Dr. Brandt, and as we sail off today, here is the Semester at Sea alma mater.
that those who travel seem to know. Take our time to leave us smile. 